welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ann Cameron from the University of Michigan talking about urethral diverticulum and vaginal wall masses. All right, good morning slash afternoon to everyone, depending on where you're tuning in from. Um, looks like we're at the top of the hour, so we'll go ahead and get started. My name's Alyssa Gracely. I am one of the SPMRS fellows at the University of Michigan, and I have the pleasure to uh, learn from Dr. Ann Cameron, who will be our speaker this morning slash afternoon. Dr. Cameron is a professor of urology at the University of Michigan in our neurology and pelvic reconstruction division, and she will be giving a talk on urethral diverticulum and vaginal wall masses. Great, thank you, Dr. Gracely. Um, so welcome everyone. Um, hope you can all see my slides um, currently. Uh, so the topic today is urethral diverticulum and vaginal wall masses. And um, just a few housekeeping issues before we get started. Um, I will be taking questions um, at the end um, and we'd ask that you enter them in the Q&A function. So um, those questions will be collected until the end of the lecture, and then um, I'll be able to answer those for you. Um, this is uh, my Twitter handle here, if anybody um, wants to make some comments or, or tweet out about the message today. And you all know that this is being recorded um, in case um, some of your colleagues are not able to view it today. Um, so we will get started. So urethral diverticulum and vaginal wall masses are um, actually very poorly understood amongst particularly urologists. They are, however, part of our core curriculum and we all see them quite frequently. Um, I'm part of an AUA education committee and that was identified as being one of the areas in FPMRS that urologists felt the least comfortable. So this is what led to actually me, me making this um, a lecture series. Um, there's gonna be a lot of pictures and um, a lot of uh, visuals to uh, try to teach this to you as, as best as possible. And the good news is, is that um, this, these conditions can often be identified visually. You often don't need a biopsy or imaging to even identify what's going on. All right, so here are my disclosures. So when we talk about the urethra, um, this, is, this is really the best way to explain it. Um, male urethral pathology is actually quite straightforward, but women have quite complicated urethras, even though it's a very small female organ, and um, the vagina as well are um, very complex organs that um, can be very difficult to understand. So we have a poll um, that is, um, we're gonna start right now, so we're gonna have all the participants answer this question. So you have a 72-year-old woman who is not sexually active. She has a smooth urethral caruncle noted on vaginal exam. She's asymptomatic. When you see her in the office, you probe it with a swab and you make the lesion bleed. So what is the next best step? So we're gonna have everyone please enter in your answer to this question. We'll give everyone a few seconds to answer that. All right, so this is the, um, uh, the answers that we've, we've, um, uh, we've received here. The most popular answer is uh, place her on topical estrogen reassess. All right, so our next question. Yeah, okay, sorry, I thought I'd skip a slide. Next question is the two most important steps in a urethral diverticulectomy are so A, removing the entire lining of the tick and ensuring a watertight vaginal closure. B, avoiding excision of the vaginal mucosa and leaving a catheter. C, closing the ostea and reapproximating the periurethral fascia. And D, avoiding manipulation of the urethral sphincter and using only absorbable sutures. So what do you think are the most important parts of this um, procedure? So we'll let everyone vote. So we'll give you a few more seconds to answer your question.
All right, so the most popular answer, um, just by a hair, is uh, removing the entire lining of the tick and ensuring a watertight closure. All right. Go to next. So here's our next question. A 50-year-old G2P2 woman who has a past history of stress incontinence uh, treated surgically with bulging agent that failed and later a synthetic mid-urethral sling. So that's her past history. So she presents with uh, a CT scan that is interpreted as urethral diverticulum. She's continent and otherwise asymptomatic. So what is your plan and why? So are you gonna excise this diverticulum because it's gonna eventually cause symptoms or develop malignancy? You wanna excise her pseudodiverticulum that is probably caused by traction from the sling. Reassure, this isn't actually a diverticulum or D, repeat imaging annually to follow this diverticulum for possible malignancy. So we'll give everyone a minute to answer that. All right, I'll give everyone a few more seconds and we'll see what everyone says. All right. All right, so 59% of people wanted to reassure her because this wasn't a diverticulum. So we'll repeat those questions at the end and I'll give you the answers. All right, so vaginal wall masses, uh, you can really lump into two major categories. One would be urethral origin and the other would be vaginal origin. And if you look at the percentages, actually the most of them are actually um, urethral in origin. Three to 4% of all women have some sort of urethral uh, lesion that could be considered a vaginal wall mass. And 1% of women have some sort of vaginal wall mass that's actually vaginal in origin. And I'm not including prolapse, cystocele and rectocele. Those are far more common. And those actually aren't masses. Those are just prolapse. So I'm not including them in this discussion. And here is the list of uh, differential diagnosis, which is actually pretty long, um, but we'll go over the most important of these today. So here's one that I really want to um, note is that um, oftentimes imaging can find something that looks like a cancer recurrence or a diverticulum. And this was a woman who'd had a neobladder and uh, was sent to me with a cancer recurrence at her urethra. And this is a woman that I'd actually done a bulking agent. You can actually see that this is a sphere of bulking agent in this area. And again, this is another woman who um, was sent to me with um, an incidental finding on CT scan. She'd had a bulking agent and was diagnosed with this crescent-shaped urethral diverticulum. So this is something to be on the lookout for um, when someone's had a bulking agent in the past, um, they can look like urethral diverticula and um, this can be diagnosed on physical exam as well as on history. Because if someone's had a bulking agent, it's pretty unlikely that they also have a concomitant diverticulum. So let's talk about urethral caruncles and mucosal prolapse. And they're actually the same thing. Um, we use the same word interchangeably and I think we just use it to grade the, um, the severity of the condition. So you can see here on the left of your screen, this is a tiny asymptomatic um, caruncle that this woman um, had. She was unaware of the lesion. Um, it was just simply a physical exam finding. It didn't bother her. Uh, on the right, this is a woman who had a urethral caruncle that had persisted for some time. Uh, she found that she had bleeding with wiping and with intercourse and she was very bothered by it. Both of these lesions, if you probe them enough in the office, so the woman on the left, if you take a Q-tip and you go scratching at it, and um, irritating it, it's going to bleed because um, it's very friable mucosa. But again, um, it's, it's normal that it would bleed if you irritate it. But again, if it's not bleeding on a regular basis and is not bothering her, that's probably not a symptom or a sign of it. Whereas the lady on the right, um, she was having persistent bleeding from this. So here's a more um, extreme example of urethral mucosal prolapse. This is the same woman on both sides of the screen, one with a catheter in place. You can see that her urethra has basically lost its um, adherence to the um, inner lining of the urethra and the entire urethral mucosa has prolapsed, much like a rectal mucosal prolapse. And it's really the same type of pathophysiology. And this woman was very bothered, having a lot of bleeding and didn't resolve with conservative measures like topical estrogen. 
Um, again, here's another example of a woman who had a, really a, a two-lobed urethral mucosal prolapse. And it looks a little bit weird on the video when you look at it here, but when you look at it up close, this is very smooth mucosa. So this is not abnormal mucosa. There's no lesions in the mucosa. It just looks like urethral mucosa that happens to be sticking out from her um, uh, urethral meatus. And when you look closely, you can really see that it's normal mucosa. It's just herniated. This is a woman who had a more um, severe presentation. Again, the mucosa was normal when I first saw her, but she had a urethral mucosal prolapse that actually got strangulated and had some venous congestion and actually sloughed off. So this is intra-op before excising it. But again, the mucosa was normal. It was just that the lesion had become incarcerated and necrotic, and obviously she needed to be taken care of. So um, this is from a paper written by uh, Mary Beth Hall, um, who was a prior medical student at the University of Michigan, um, and a, a treatment decision that I think makes a lot of sense. Um, so if you have someone who has a prolapse or caruncle, if they're asymptomatic, no concerning features, you just need to educate them and reassure. You really don't need to do anything just because you see a prolapse. If they're symptomatic, it's just bothersome. You can start them on cis bath and estrogen cream. And if it resolves, fine. If it doesn't resolve, then you can consider surgical excision. However, some women present with severe pain. Sometimes they can be very painful, especially when they're venous congestion. If they're thrombosed or necrotic bleeding, or if the woman's in a lot of distress, you can do a surgical excision, which is actually a pretty uh, straightforward procedure. These are some diagrams of uh, the methodology behind that. Basically, you grasp the lesion uh, with um, an alice and retract it out as much as possible and then you pre-place sutures in the urethral lumen and this is important because once you excise the lesion that urethral mucosa will disappear into the urethral lumen and you'll lose your edge so you want to place your four stitches excise the lesion and then use your stay stitches to just reapproximate the proper mucosa so there are other urethral pathologies that can mimic um, urethral caruncles, but they look very different. This woman here had this mucosal prolapse out of her urethra, but you can see it does not look like normal mucosa. That's very strange looking mucosa. Um, nothing about this mucosa looks normal. There's a weird vascular pattern. So um, I excised this lesion and it ended up being a fiber epithelial polyp. The only reason I knew that is because that's what pathology told me it was. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known that's what it was because the mucosa is quite abnormal. And if there is abnormal mucosa, it does require biopsy or excision. Um, this is a condyloma on both sides of the screen. This actually has a classic appearance of condyloma. On the left-hand side, this was just treated with um, topical solution because it is very classic appearance. The one on the right, um, this woman was having uh, great difficulty urinating and voiding. Um, so this required excision and then topical treatment. But um, condylomas, um, you can also put acetic acid on them and blanch them. So that's another a diagnostic test that will uh, lead to that diagnosis. Vaginal cancer um, is, um, can sometimes be very difficult to diagnose because um, the lesions are, can sometimes be quite flat or not visible. This is the case where um, I was called in because of the urethral lesions that were noted. You can see around the urethra, but um, you can see that there's multiple satellite lesions inside of this woman's um, uh, introitus. Um, she has multiple satellite lesions uh, at 12 in here. And, and again, these lesions look very unusual. They're very vascular, and uh, these require a biopsy if you suspect vaginal cancer in any way. And again, these are not urethral lesions. These are all over uh, vaginal epithelium. Um, this is um, a woman who uh, was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis. So she presented with pelvic pain and uh, was given some reassurance, was told to take Tylenol and Motrin, and um, she had worsening and worsening pelvic pain, and no one had really actually done a physical exam on this woman, and you can clearly see why she's having pelvic pain, because she has this huge, really awful looking mass coming out of her urethra that clearly has grossly abnormal mucosa. Um, this is intraoperatively, but you can see that um, this lesion is coming out of her urethra. Um, it, bleeding, there's nothing normal about this, and this was palpable on bimanual exam. So um, there is a lot of value in a pelvic exam when a woman has pelvic pain because you do often find um, pathology, or at least you can pinpoint her tenderness. So 
Um, this woman uh, was followed conservatively for a very long time and ultimately ended up having positive lymph nodes. Um, and so this is what um, her a, a urethra will look like when someone has um, squamous cell carcinoma of their urethra. Um, and again, this is uh, clearly abnormal. And um, this was a terrible pathology and uh, this woman ended up undergoing a pelvic accenturation. All right, so this is um, another case um, of a woman who presented to the emergency department with urinary retention. Uh, she had some other strange symptoms um, and they were attributed to multiple sclerosis. So she did not have a pelvic exam. Uh, she had MRI imaging of her brain and of her spine that came up negative um, and her other symptoms went away, but she was being managed with a Foley catheter for five months before seeing me in consultation for urinary retention. And you can see that this entire white area on the left is a huge urethral cancer um, that caused her to go into urinary retention. And, um, you know, this is clearly something that anyone, if they'd actually examined her, would have would have found. This is another woman who was diagnosed with allergic urethritis, which doesn't exist, um, and uh, was, was treated with several topical treatments. She was treated with estrogen and steroids for this very large mass um, at her meatus. And on cystoscopy, you can see what you, show, what you see, but this is, this is vaginal cancer. It was squamous cell carcinoma of the vagina and urethra that was causing her lesion. And this is what it looked like on MRI that was done uh, three months prior to me seeing her so again, anything that looks weird needs biopsying. Anything that looks smooth, not abnormal, um, does not need to be biopsied, but it's, it's clear that you have to use your clinical judgment and when in doubt, biopsy. So we'll move on to urethral diverticula uh, or urethral diverticulum, the singular. And um, urethral diverticulum are outpouchings of the urethra uh, that usually point towards the vagina. Um, they typically um, are in that direction and um, are, are somewhat of a difficult diagnosis to make. Um, they were described back in the 1800s and they were basically, how hard you look for them is how often you diagnose them. So if you take a whole large group of women and put them through an MRI scanner, you'll see four to 5% of women do have some sort of urethral diverticulum. And um, there's, I, I have a reference here in, in the text. This is a review article I wrote in 2016. I'm happy to share that with the entire group, but, um, all of the slides I'm gonna show you subsequent to this one, um, they are referenced in that paper. So it's a great review of the topic um, and um, that's my reference for the rest of this talk. So again, urethral diverticula occur in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, there have been eight case reports of children um, having them. So that really questions uh, whether that's even possible if there's so few case reports of it. It's probably only an acquired um, thing that happens after, uh, usually after childbirth. African-American women are three times more likely uh, to have this lesion and to get surgery, and that's from database work. And uh, often women have no symptoms, and that's why this is so difficult to diagnose on physical. So at autopsy, it's seen in 0.6% of the time. And if you take women with lower urinary tract symptoms and you do an MRI, 10% will have it. So we don't really know what the uh, prevalence of this is, but just so that we understand it's probably actually quite high. Um, and again, th there's the theory that there's a congenital occurrence. Um, I would say those are probably all misdiagnosis because there's so few case reports, but it's uh, most likely an infection of the periurethral glands. Um, and I'll show you a diagram of how that happens in a second, usually from trauma or surgery um, that, that causes the disruption. And um, the other is uh, a pseudodiverticulum, which is a disruption of the periurethral fascia via surgery. So this is uh, a diagram of, in theory, how this happens. So these are periurethral glands or Skene's glands. And what happens here, you see A is a normal periurethral gland, and that gland can get um, disrupted or it can get occluded or something happens to that gland and it gets a little bit swollen. Uh, that can get even more swollen and possibly infected. And then that actually ruptures into the urethra. So the ostea of a diverticulum is not a, a gland. It's not the opening of a gland. It's actually an abscess 
ostea. So the abscesses ruptured into the urethra. That's why they're kind of in weird locations and they aren't exactly predictable, but they are located along the area where the Skeen's glands exist. So the ostea are variable in shape and in size because they are not um, occurring in the body de novo. They actually are a rupture of an abscess. The configuration of urethral diverticulum are, um, are, are quite interesting and can be very different. Um, the easy ones here on the left A are just a little circular um, diverticulum, a little grape located on, on the anterior vaginal wall. Those are, are pretty easy to take care of. You can have a, um, a, a, a semicircle or a saddle shape. And then again, there's a circumferential um, here in C, uh, which can be much more difficult to diagnose. But you can see clearly that I've, I, in C, I've shown the, the uh, MRI cut of the ostea that can be very clearly seen on MRI. So based on the systematic review that I did, um, the, the symptoms and signs and physical exam findings for diverticula vary quite widely amongst, um, amongst um, uh, papers. On physical exam, a mass is found on 78% of the time. However, this is not 78% of women with diverticular diagnosed on physical exam. It's when someone knows they have a diverticulum and then they re-examine the woman. They go, aha, there's this urethral diverticulum. So it's not quite that simple. This woman right here, that's her urethral diverticulum. And really, um, visually, that is not a very impressive um, physical exam. You could palpate it, but it was really only after ordering an MRI that I was able to appreciate this because it wasn't really a palpable cystic structure. Sometimes they are, and that's really nice when you can do a vaginal exam and find a cystic structure at the urethral area, but not always. Express purulence only occurs around a third of the time, but it's very diagnostic. If you are palpating someone's mid-urethral area and you express pus out their meatus when you do that, you really need to look for a urethral diverticulum um, because it's very diagnostic. The, the triple D of dysuria, dysperunia, and dribbling, the, the, uh, the triad that is talked about in textbook, occurs in less than 20% of women. So don't expect that to, to be the classic presenting symptom. Again, it's not that common to have all three. Dysuria happens in 40%, dysperunia, 33%. You can see the rest of these here, dribbling, pelvic pain, urgency, stress incontinence, urge incontinence, UTIs, and no symptoms. Again, this is every single symptom that exists in FPMRS. So, um, and if you look at it, really, the overactive bladder symptoms are actually, if, if you group them together, are the most common symptoms that patients present with. So, you really need um, a keen ear when you're listening to patients, and a keen eye, and have a high index of suspicion, for um, women who have symptoms that you think are not resolving with traditional treatments, or just, just kind of have that, that collection of symptoms that make you suspicious. So I always try to keep an air of suspicion, especially um, with the recurrent UTI patients when um, they aren't treated with regular symptoms and are, are pelvic pain and dyspareunia patients. But again, they are very elusive and um, they, they just re they require a lot of attention to detail when you're doing a history. So on cystoscopy, again, once you know someone has urethral diverticulum, you can see the ostea 42% of the time. And you can see in this photo, the bladder neck is on the left, and there's an ostea there on the right, and here's an ostea on the left, and that's a huge ostea. They are normally not that big, um, but again, 42% um, of the time you actually find an ostea. And so here's a, a cysto that I did before a case. I knew where the ostea was, I just did it because I wanted to, but again, you can express purulence out of the diverticulum during your cystoscopy, and it really confirms the exact location of your ostea. So I like to start the case doing a cystoscopy to look for that, um, which can be helpful since they're already um, having the procedure. I typically do not do a cystoscopy in the office because if you have an MRI and you have a diagnosis, there's no added value in doing it ahead of time. Double balloon urethrography, is historical. It's very painful. Um, you put the balloon in the bladder, you put the other balloon at the meatus, and you inflate both of them, and then you put high-pressure fluid through a hole in the center between the two. Uh, these catheters are actually not available, um, and they are not manufactured anymore. It's very, very specific and very sensitive, but just a very not, um, not practical test, and you can see what that looks like. You put contrast in, in the balloon, uh, on the inside, and then you can see a tick here. But again, uh, this is very impractical and very painful for patients.
BCUG, occasionally you will um, just see urethral diverticulum. This is a patient of mine who I was doing uh, urodynamics on for an unrelated reason and then saw this blush after she voided and it turns out she actually had a urethral diverticulum. If you do a VCUG on women known to have a diverticulum, you can often see a blush, but it's, um, I don't find that terribly reliable, but again, um, you can occasionally find it that way. Ultrasound, um, again, 82% um, sensitive, but it's operator dependent. Um, and if the tick is um, collapsed, when you apply the ultrasound probe, it collapses it. But again, if uh, you do receive an ultrasound report, with questions of a tick, it could very well be there, but it's not the um, imaging of choice. Imaging of choice is MRI. MRI is 97% um, sensitive. It gives you anatomic information. It shows you where the ostea is. It shows you how far up the diverticulum goes, its extent, its size. It'll show you if there's a stone within it. Um, I find it extremely helpful. Um, I prefer to do an MRI on every patient before I, um, I operate on them because sometimes there's more than one ostea. Sometimes the tick is very um, lobulated and septated, and I don't want to remove half of the diverticulum and leave the other half behind. Um, but you do have to be cautious. Um, I have seen many MRIs which have been read as a urethral diverticulum. I look at the imaging myself and I don't see an ostea and you take the woman to the operating room and you find a perfectly circumscribed cyst. So in the OR is where you make the final diagnosis because if there is no ostea, it was not a diverticulum. Uh, these are just some other examples of the other views you can look at. You can see how this um, diverticulum wraps all the way around the urethra and sometimes the uh, diverticulum are, are absolutely huge. You can see this one that is rivaling the size of the bladder and um, I have had uh, colleagues of mine give me um, images and photos, and this one is courtesy of Quentin Clements, and I will uh, attribute images uh, to friends if, um, if appropriate um, in the corner of the slide. And again, this is um, a woman who had a calcified urethral diverticulum, um, and this is um, images of what it looked like during the dissection. So the pathology of these these sacs um, are, are often just inflammation because they're typically infected and painful, but occasionally you'll see nephrogenic metaplasia and malignancy has been reported in up to 3%. The uh, number one diagnosis is adenocarcinoma, especially clear cell, um, and occasionally urothelial, but um, it's, this is a little bit um, hard to interpret because Again, uh, it is very, very rare to take a woman who has an MRI of a what appears to be urethral diverticulum and end up finding that it has malignancy in it. And this is nephrogenic metaplasia, and this is clear cell adenocarcinoma. I guess these can somehow mimic each other pathologically, uh, but again, they really don't look that much alike. This was um, a case series um, from the Cleveland Clinic that had 90 women um, who had urethral diverticulum, and five of them were, were malignant, um, and some had um, intestinal metaplasia, some had nephrogenic adenoma, which was benign. But again, you can see this image, which is a picture of one of those patients. So again, on bimanual exam, this woman would have had palpable urethral cancer. Um, I'm not convinced that urethral diverticulum turns into malignancy. That's very controversial, but I think, um, you know, if you have good imaging, um, you can probably pretty easily predict whether this is a thin-walled sac. Again, urethral carcinoma is extraordinarily rare, and urethral diverticulum are actually quite common, so um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not certain that these are, are intimately related, although it's something you have to discuss with patients. And for example, this is a patient of mine who had multiple medical comorbidities um, and had this um, image done uh, that showed a urethral diverticulum. And you can see a layering stone because this is an MRI stones appear as black. And this was her imaging from 10 years ago, which looked exactly the same. Uh, no changes um, in the size, configuration, and obviously, no malignancy located in this um, that was just followed for 10 years because of competing comorbidities. Um, she ultimately elected to have it removed. Um, and you know, this is what we saw. Her tick was full of these little yucky black stones. 
and uh, this is what the uh, tick looked like uh, after we excised it. We opened it up to look at the inside. But again, um, you know, these can be followed um, in people who have competing medical comorbidities, or especially those patients who have no symptoms. These asymptomatic findings on a CT or MRI, uh, I have a hard time convincing someone to have a diverticulectomy, uh, which can cause stress incontinence, sphincter dysfunction, when there's really very, very little evidence uh, that, that these can are pre-malignant lesions. So um, I tend to do a lot of counseling of these patients and follow them um, over time. Uh, many patients elect never to have anything done. Um, but again, if they're symptomatic, having recurrent UTIs, then it is uh, definitely possible that this is the cause of their symptoms. So pseudodiverticulum are a little bit different. Um, a true diverticulum, as you can see up in the right-hand corner, is uh, a pocket um, off the side of the urethra that is ruptured into the urethra that has a diverticulum sac. And you can see the periuteral fascia, which is indicated here, is intact. And that's a classic surgical finding that you find the diverticulum below the periuteral fascia. You have to physically open it to get to the diverticulum. And that's also important when you're differentiating other cysts from urethral diverticulum. So all true diverticulum are located below the, the periuteral fascia. A pseudodiverticulum, however, is a rupture in the, the periurethral fascia, and it's actually the mucosa of the urethra that has prolapsed. So there's a periurethral fascial defect, and the urethra has blown out um, the side, and this is um, what we consider a pseudodiverticulum. And um, here's an, and again, this can happen because of uh, disruption of the periurethral fascia from bladder neck suspension, or um, I've seen them occurring after a mesh sling. Um, and again, you, you repair these by, not by excising the urethra, but by repairing the periurethral fascia. And again, here is a cross-section of the urethra. Um, and you can see those arrows are pointing at the periurethral fascia, which is a real layer and it really exists. And this is it right here. And it's one that you can absolutely see surgically. Um, again, you should be above that layer when you're putting a sling in. And when someone has a diverticulum, it actually becomes thicker and more inflamed. It becomes a more um, distinct layer. And again, this is what it looks like on cross-section. You can actually um, appreciate it um, on an MRI um, if, you, if you look very closely. So here is on A is a true diverticulum, an MRI, and I've outlined the urethral lining in yellow. So you can see that the urethra is connected to this pseudodiverticulum through, a, or through this true diverticulum through a very narrow ostia. And the periurethral fascia in blue is intact. But this woman in B, um, her periurethral fascia was disrupted and her urethra is actually ballooned out. So there's no ostia, there's no neck. It's just that the urethra has pooched out and created this, um, this outpouching. And so this is um, a different woman um, who presented with um, the MRI finding on the right, which was read as a urethral diverticulum, but looks exactly like the last MRI I showed you. And you can see here's her physical exam. You can actually see this lesion with your eyes, which is strange because it should be deep to the periurethral fascia. And here's what it looks like when you put a cystoscope in her urethra. You can actually put the cystoscope into this thing because it is, has such a huge neck and it's actually, again, a disruption in the urethra. So there's urethra and there's basically just vaginal mucosa. So um, she'd had no prior vaginal surgeries, but when you did a good exam, you could see this um, laceration in her vagina. Apparently she'd had a very difficult vaginal delivery with a very uh, extensive um, laceration of her vagina. What this looks like is she had a laceration that extended through her periurethral fascia that was repaired incompletely, and so she got this um, urethral mucosal blowout afterwards. So again, you don't excise these because you're excising the urethra. You expose it, you uh, plicate this until you have a normal appearing urethra, and then you close periurethral fascia over it, and it actually gets rid of the lesion for them. There is a classification system for urethral diverticulum, um, and, it's, and it makes sense. Um, it's one that, that helps you communicate with other people, and uh, I think are important points to put in the operative report when you are uh, treating a patient. Again, it's the LNSC3. Um, I don't really remember the, those letters, but I think noting the location, how many, how big they are, their configuration, where they communicate with the urethra and how continent the patient is are very important. I would add to that whether it's a pseudo or true diverticulum since it changes the surgical approach. 
And um, the only one of these that actually impacts um, cure would be the configuration. And saddle, um, understandably, uh, have the worst um, prognosis because it's really hard to completely uh, remove these. Um, and uh, you often compromise continence more often with this really aggressive dissection that is trans all the way around the urethra. So uh, this is a surgical technique for urethral diverticulectomy. Um, uh, exposure is by far your best friend. So I like to use a Lone Star retractor. Um, it allows your assistant to uh, provide suction rather than um, you having them use multiple vaginal retractors. I use um, a weighted vaginal retractor. I make a U-shaped flap. It gives you the best access to the urethra. Um, and then um, here, this is us opening up the periurethral fascia. So you can see the periurethral fascia, which was directly below the vaginal flap, has been opened up. And dead center is the actual diverticulum here. And you can see that periurethral fascia is really thick uh, tissue. It's going to be a great layer of closure. So then you start dissecting out the tick below that next layer. Eventually, you have to open up the diverticulum to be able to assess its extent because you don't want to go way off in the wrong direction. You really just want to excise the tick um, so you can excise all of its portions. But really, the important parts of this is you need a good vaginal wall flap. You really want to preserve that periurethral fascia. That periurethral fascia is what is going to heal over the urethra and is going to make your repair strong, make your repair watertight. That ostia that you're going to close is, is very important. Again, you want to excise the neck of the ostia and close it well, um, or they're going to end up with a fistula. Removing the entire wall and sac is very important. However, if there is a little bit of sac left behind that is not connected with the urethra, it's not really going to do anything. Again, you strive to remove it all. That's not the most important part of this. You really want to close that ostia really well, again, because that is going to be connecting with the urinary tract. And, um, and again, you want to close that periurethral fascia very well because that is really your strength layer. Um, close the dead space and then close your vaginal flap. So let's move on to other cystic lesions uh, of the vagina. Again, the urethra is quite a complex organ. It has multiple cysts and glands attributed to it. And uh, the ones we've been talking about are the Skene's glands, the urethral glands, that are those that, um, that can often get um, occluded or and those are the ones that turn into urethral diverticulum, but again, not through the Skene's gland duct. So a Skene's duct cyst is when the Skene's duct gets occluded and there is um, clear mucinous fluid, and they usually displace the urethra. So usually there's urine spraying um, is what the patient presents with. This is um, a picture in clinic, but it can be really hard to differentiate between that and a very distal diverticulum. So the woman on the right is a distal diverticulum. When you compress it, you can actually get purulence out of it, but the other one on the other side just feels like a cystic structure. Again, these are round. These are, don't extend in strange shapes. They're round, easily palpable, and don't necessarily need treatment unless the patient is symptomatic. Um, this is a patient who came with an MRI of her Skene's duct cyst um, for differential diagnosis. And you can see they're usually quite round. And when you look at the MRI carefully, it does not communicate with the urethra. So if you look carefully through them, that's the case. Occasionally, um, you will go to excise one of these and find that um, it does communicate with urethra and it was misdiagnosed. So again, the technique for removing these is um, very similar to a urethral diverticulum. Again, you make a U-shaped flap and if the cyst is right there, then it's clearly a Skene's duct cyst because those will be superior to the periurethral fascia and you don't have to enter it. Um, malarian cysts are a little bit different. These are true vaginal cysts. Uh, they typically occur in the midline, and there are malarian remnants uh, that um, develop a cystic structure. They're commonly very small and asymptomatic, and 44% of all vaginal cysts are actually malarian cysts, and they're full of very clear uh, mucinous fluid. And you can see this one right here. You can almost see through it. It is so thin. This woman was very bothered because it obstructed intercourse. So she elected to have it removed. She also came with an MRI um, already of the lesion. And you can see, especially on the right-hand view, the urethra above this cyst, there's a ton of distance between the two and there's no communication between the two. And these are actually really fun uh, to dissect out because you open up the vaginal mucosa 
And these are not inflamed, these are not infected, they're usually just these little sacs of um, mucinous fluid that come out intact. So they come out um, like a little water balloon. And if you don't burst them, they actually will maintain their fluid during the entire procedure. And this is another example of one, again, it was removed completely intact. When you put your finger on this thing, no fluid came out of it and we opened it up just to have a look at the inside. But again, that's what a malarian cyst looks like. Gartner's duct cyst, uh, this is the only picture directly from the internet in this talk. Uh, are, they say they occur 10%. I've never seen one. I don't know anyone who's actually seen one who could give me a picture. So they're, they're pretty rare. They, are, um, they were reported in the 1820s and your actual Gartner's duct is a vestigial remnant located in the broad ligament of the uterus. And they are always on the lateral wall of the vagina because that's where the, uh, the, uh, the remnants um, exist of the mesonephric duct, you can see in red. So they're always lateral. Um, they tend to be uh, very vascular and very translucent. And you can excise them or marsupialize them, both work very well. But they're always on the lateral vaginal wall because of the, uh, their, their location. Whereas the malarian cysts occur remnants of the malarian duct and that's more diffused through the vagina. Barcelin's gland cysts, here's a, a classic example of one. Uh, again, these occur at the introitus and they occur at the five and seven o'clock position. Here's a rather large, uh, very um, painful one that again, these can be treated most often with marsupialization, usually because they're usually infected at the time and these are very well treated that way. But you can see here, um, this yellow structure, that's your Barthlin's gland, and when it develops a cyst, this is the location of it. And these are normal glands that aid in vaginal lubrication, but then when they get obstructed, they're often infected and need um, drainage. So there are occasional solid lesions of the vagina. Uh, this is a uh, vaginal lyomyoma that's displacing the vagina. Um, again, um, when removed, they're, they're quite um, hard and white, but they can look very different as well. So here's just a case that, that came up relatively recently, a woman who presented with a uh, very large vaginal mass. You can see it here on MRI displacing her bladder. Um, the lesion was very large, very hard, very unusual looking on MRI. Um, and also she had autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease as just an aside. Um, and there's her um, MRI anterior view, but again, very, very strange lesion that I ultimately ended up biopsying it. This is what her vaginal exam looked like. And this was definitely not a cystocele. This was hard, this was palpable by manually. And she also had strange lesions on her vulva that ended up being just fibroepithelial polyps. Um, and um, that ended up actually being a, um, a lyomyoma, just a very, very large one. All right, so we'll get back to our questions that we started with. So. Um, this 72-year-old woman who's not sexually active and has a smooth urethral caruncle, she's asymptomatic, but when you probe it with a slob, the lesion bleeds, so what do you do? You actually should just observe this woman. If she's not having any symptoms at home, she's not having any bleeding with intercourse or with wiping, uh, just because you can scratch it until it bleeds, it doesn't mean that, that it needs any treatment. Um, so this woman could be easily observed. If it was bleeding or bothersome, then obviously you put her on top of the last year to reassess. Um, the two most important steps in urethral diverticulectomy are closing the ostium and reapproximating the periurethral fascia. Not that the other steps are not important, but uh, these two steps will, number one, prevent her from developing a fistula, and the other would be aiding and healing. Um, so those are really the most important steps. And again, when you open up that periurethral fascia, you want to preserve it for closure. So this 50-year-old woman who presented with um, a weird CT scan, that was interpreted as urethral diverticulum. The group got this one right. Reassure, this isn't a diverticulum. I get this referral at least two or three times a year. Um, and again, if someone's had a bulking agent, it probably was that. So you do a good physical exam and uh, review the images yourself and you can usually make the diagnosis. All right, so I'm happy to take um, some questions. I'll stop sharing my screen and um, I'll take um, questions. Um, Dr. Grace, I think you had collected some questions from the audience. I did. Um, so there were a couple questions um, sort of around the beginning of the talk when you were talking about the condylomas. Um, just asking about your preferred topical treatment for those intravaginal or periurethral condylomas and then how long you would do the treatment before moving to excision. 
So um, in, in all honesty, I usually, uh, I, I usually use um, liquid nitrogen on those um, in the office if I have uh, the patient in the office. And I, I didn't go into detail, but um, any woman who ha does have um, vaginal condyloma also needs, um, she needs, usually need a colposcopy and they also need anal colposcopy done. So I refer them to gynecology because there's more than just uh, destroying the lesions that's involved. So I will certainly um, destroy the lesions, but um, I don't prescribe topicals. I send them to gynecology to have it fully treated because um, I think that's important that they get the full treatment. And I don't want to prescribe something and have that person never go for follow-up. Um, and now moving on to some of the urethral diverticulum questions. Um, someone was wondering if um, you had a couple pictures of um, ticks with MRI on your PowerPoint, if you could potentially identify the ostea on them or point it out to them. Sure, I will try to do that here. So these are all my images um, that I've, ooh, um, here we go. Um, can you see those, Alyssa, on the screen right yeah. now? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so here we go. So um, the only image right now that you can actually see the ostea is in C. So that is, that is the image where you can actually see the urethra and then you see the neck connecting over here. Um, these other views, you're actually not seeing the ostea. Um, you, you really need to scroll through the images quite carefully to see the ostea, but it, it tends to look pretty much like what you see there and see. Um, and again, um, I rely on my um, radiologist as well. They'll often say ostea seen in whatever view, and, and I, I certainly look at those views um, because it can be helpful to know where at least there's one ostea, but there's oftentimes two. Um, you, you can be easily fooled, and um, so I don't always rely on the radiology. I, I use it to know at least where one ostea is, but there might be more. Along the lines of imaging for urethral diverticulum, um, someone had asked if there were any tips or protocols you put in your study orders to help the radiologist, you know, obtain the best scan mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. how that works. Um, I think it's important to fill out your, your requisition properly. Um, at least at the University of Michigan, we have an MRI urethral protocol so I actually asked for the urethral protocol um, and, and, and described that I'm looking for a urethral diverticulum. So that's how they are accomplished at University of Michigan. And again, you get really good resolution views because they give you a larger view, but then they cone in on the urethra and, and give you those views that you need. Um, you don't need contrast. These are non-con imaging. Um, and you really want to look at the T2 weighted images because that's where you, you can really identify the fluid located within the diverticulum. And then in patients who are relatively asymptomatic or poor surgical candidates who have a diverticulum that you elect to follow, is there a protocol that you have in place for your follow-up as far as imaging and exams? Um, if the imaging at the beginning has any worrisome features, for example, um, someone who has a polyp within one of the divertic within the diverticulum, um, has anything other than a simple cystic looking structure, I advise against observation. Also, some women, when you express the fluid out of the diverticulum, there's bleeding. In those women, I always recommend excision because, you know, you don't know what's, what's causing the bleeding. But for most women, it is a smooth walled um, cystic structure. And if it is asymptomatic and not causing them any symptoms um, and their imaging is good, so their imaging shows the diverticulum quite clearly, um, I follow them with a physical exam, um, a symptom assessment annually. Um, I don't necessarily repeat MRI imaging um, every year. I might repeat their MRI every two to three years if the woman was really concerned about it. But there, again, there, is, there are no reports of women with a diverticulum progressing onto malignancy. That's never been reported women have presented with malignancy and they also have a diverticulum, but there are no 
actual reports of women having a long-term diverticulum that presented with malignancy. They can present over the long-term with fistulization. So I've seen women who've had known diverticula for years who fistulize to their vagina and other strange complications, but not malignancy. And then one last question just about the workup of urethral diverticulum. Someone had asked if you can't obtain an MRI or in a low resource setting, but you have a suspicion for it that's not confirmed on exam, what other imaging or workup would you perform in lieu of the MRI? Hmm, that's a good one. I think the, the only reason you couldn't get an MRI, I think, would be uh, presence of an implantable device that is um, contraindicated for MRI, which, which does happen. Um, in those cases, I have done double balloon urethrography um, on a few patients with um, very complex pacemakers. Um, but again, it's, it's more what's available at your site. Um, our radiologist had some double balloon urethrography. Um, tools. I think I would do a cysto on those patients um, to try to identify an ostea. And an, a CT scan can often give you uh, some resolution of the urethra. Um, I've seen many urethral diverticula on CT scan and not gotten an MRI to confirm it because if, it's, if you see a lesion around the urethra, what else could it be? So I think a CT would be a reasonable option. Um, I'm not I'm not very comfortable with ultrasound because it's not a modality I use often. So I, there may be people that are more facile with it who would use it, but I would prefer a CT scan and a cisco. Great. Moving to some of the surgical questions. Do you pre-treat with antibiotics prior to your urethral diverticulectomies? Yes, I do. I forgot to say that during my talk. Uh, yes, I obtain a urine culture a couple of weeks ahead of time. If it's negative, I still pre-treat them with a week of antibiotics. I think it reduces inflammation. Um, your biggest enemy during the case is inflammation of the tissue. Sometimes the tissue is very fragile and ruptures, and it's very different when they're not infected at the time of your surgery. Um, I think the, the diverticulectomy goes much smoother, and, um, and so I much prefer to be um, operating on, an, on a sterile cyst. Excellent. Speaking along the lines of inflammation or reoperation, do you have any strategies for dealing with poor periurethral fascia or inflamed tissue, especially in those infected or reoperative cases if you are dissecting it off the diverticulum? Um, it, it's always difficult. Again, I showed you my nicest pictures. I certainly did not take photos of the most difficult cases I've done because they can be very difficult. Uh, the tissue can often look very similar, and I think knowing your vaginal anatomy, knowing your periurethral vaginal anatomy is really important because you have to open up the periurethral fascia and then peel the cyst off the periurethral fascia, peel it off the lateral um, tissue of the vagina, and then peeling it off the urethra is actually the most uh, difficult part because if you go too deep, you're going to end up in the urethra, and you don't have a lot of layers of, uh, of tissue between the diverticulum and the lumen of the urethra. So you have to be really careful. Um, again, maintaining your orientation is very important. And when in doubt, open up the tick. Because if you open up the tick, you know how far it goes and you won't end up dissecting for more than a few millimeters past the extent of the tick, which is really important because you don't want to be dissecting widely. Then you're dissecting into sphincter muscles, you're dissecting into the urethra. When in doubt, open up the tick. It is nice to have the turgor of the tick because tissue peels off that turgor really nicely. So leave it intact for as long as possible. And then if you're lost, open it up. You can also paint the inside of it with um, some methylene blue to make sure you get the entirety of the tick. But be really careful, that stuff stains everything and then really ruins your whole case. So if you're gonna do that, open it up very carefully, paint some dilute methylene blue on the inside and then peel it off. I tend not to use that if I can see the extent of the tick really well, but again, that's a trick that someone um, uh, that, that I've seen done before. Great. Um, could you discuss your post-operative management for the diverticulectomies, um, aka how long do you leave the Foley in? Do you do any imaging prior to removal of the catheter? So I leave the Foley in for two plus weeks, um, and I used to do a VCUG on these patients, but um, unlike VCUGs in men or after urethroplasty in men where you see this nice image, in women, their first void after a catheter is removed is very abnormal. Urine sprays everywhere. It gets all over their vagina. It pools in their vagina, and you have no idea what you've seen. Um, I found it to be completely unrewarding and usually just more confusing than anything else. Um, what I do is um, I leave the catheter in for two plus weeks. 
I see her in the office, I do a pelvic exam to assess healing of the vaginal tissue before I do anything else. If the tissue looks adequately healed, I do a visual urethrogram. So I fill the catheter with fluid, deflate the balloon and pull the catheter out very slowly. You can put a little methylene blue in the water or you can just leave it as plain water and pull it out very carefully. I find this much more effective than anything else. If you see uh, any leak out your vaginal incision, you put that catheter back in. Or if you see poor healing from the get-go, at two and a half weeks, a vaginal incision should be well healed. It should look really, really well healed. And if that's the case, great. But if not, um, you are risking a fistula. And I have managed more than one fistula after diverticulectomies. And then one final question. Um, there was just a request to explain the difference between the surgical repair for the urethral diverticulum versus pseudodiverticulums again. Mm -hmm. So the pseudodiverticula, um, sometimes you only figure out it's a pseudodiverticulum at the time of surgery. So you make your inverted U-shaped flap like anything else. And if you open up the first layer, you're gonna see is periurethral fascia. If what you see is a diverticulum when you open up the mucosa, then it's probably a pseudodiverticulum. And ways you can check that is you can put a cysto in and uh, pseudodiverticulum do not have an ostia, they don't have a neck, it's a pouching. So it's a poochy area in the urethra. It's not, it's not a narrow neck. You can often put the scope in the neck, there's no neck, of the, the pseudodiverticulum. And again, if you go cutting that thing off, you're gonna end up with a two, three centimeter hole in the urethra because it's not an ostia, it's not a neck, it's a outpouching. So the difference is, is that you open up the vaginal mucosa, you try to find the periurethral fascia that's been disrupted, freshen that area up, plicate the urethral mucosa, close the periurethral fascia over it. So plicate, Flows and then the vaginal uh, epithelium over that. You never enter the urinary tract in that whole surgery. There's no entry into the urinary tract. You've actually just plicated and closed everything up. Whereas a urethral diverticulectomy is open up vaginal mucosa, open up periurethral fascia, and then under there you find this sac that narrows down into a little teeny little neck that you snip off if you've been clever enough to do it correctly. And then you should be able to close that neck with one to two to three little teeny 4-0 sutures, um, ideally. Um, piggybacking off of that, we have an addition. So you mentioned 4-0 for the osseum closure. Do you have a, a suture preference type um, for, for the closure of the osseum and the periurethral fascia? Um, I, I like Vicryl. Um, I usually end up closing the, the ostea with like a 4-0, because if, if you've done it right, it's pretty small. Um, and again, close it very, Concisely, I do a urethrogram in the OR, so I fill the urethra with fluid right after closing it. It should be watertight at that point in time. The periurethral fascia is usually thicker. I'll end up closing that with a 3-0, um, usually a running 3-0, or interrupted, whatever seems to make it work better, and uh, closing any dead space with the 3-0, and then I, I close my vaginal epithelium with the 3-0 Vicryl. Excellent. I actually have one last question, just piggybacking off of the discussion of the pseudodiverticulum. Are you more likely to leave a like a flap, like a Mardius flap on that if there's, you know, too little periurethral fascia, if that defect is too big to actually cover your plicated urethra, or um, how do you deal with that? Mm, uh, very unlikely to leave a Martius flap with a pseudodiverticulum because you're not actually entered, you've not entered the, the urethra, you've not entered the urinary tract. The Martius flap is to prevent a fistula. And you can't develop a fistula because you've not entered the urinary tract. With urethral diverticula, if there are multiple ostea, the tissue looks bad. Uh, and again, sometimes just things just look really inflamed and really miserable, then I'll use a Martius flap in those cases. And I will place it above the, I'll close the periurethral fascia. And sometimes when you're used, doing a diverticulectomy, your periurethral fascia closure is, is not good. You realize it has not been done well. You've lost some periurethral fascia and all the inflammation. Then I'm really much more likely to put a Martius flap. I also am much more likely to put a Martius flap in someone with a lot of stress incontinence where I know I might be back another day to put a sling in. Not that you can't put a sling in at the time, uh, a, a uh, autologous sling, not a mesh sling. But um, if I know a woman has a lot of stress incontinence and didn't want simultaneous surgery, I'm way more likely to put a Martius in because when you open up next time, there's your Martius and you don't have to go anywhere near the urethra. 
Excellent. It looks like we've got a couple more questions, but we are in our last minute. Um, so what we can do is we will answer those um, online through the, um, I know that the, um, the questions will be posted on the website and um, then we can answer those later. And then we'll just encourage everyone to fill out the evaluations um, again on the website and um, go enjoy your next talk. Yes, and the next talk is on surgical management of erectile dysfunction, but you have to log back into Zoom to get on that lecture. So thank you very much, everyone. Hopefully uh, this answered some of your questions and please feel free to email me, uh, send me a message on Twitter or send me a message through the Q&A. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.